Welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of uh, Conservation Science. This is episode one, and I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people conducting science that is then used to conserve natural resources. And the first 12 episodes or so will focus on graduate students conducting natural resource science. And with that, today I am here with Kurt Heim. He's a graduate student at Montana State University working on his PhD. Welcome, Kurt. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, heard some exciting news the other day that uh, you're pregnant. Well, yes, we, we are <laughs> pregnant. Um, my wife Megan's due in May, and uh, yeah, we're very excited. We're trying to get ready for a big, big life change, um, but... Yeah, we're super pumped up about it. Yeah, that's very exciting. So um, it is a big life change, um, but it's worth every every bit of it. Yeah, my dad said, you know, if you wait till you think you're ready and got your, all your ducks in a row before you have kids, you're going to be 40 before you have kids, or you're never going to have kids at all because you never think you're ready. Yep. So I, get this I took we took that advice to heart and decided to just go for it, even though. I'm still a poorly paid graduate student without a job, but yeah, I was finishing up my PhD when we had Isaac, my oldest son, and you know we got the same advice, and uh, we said let's let's start a family, and we're as ready as we'll ever be. So, uh, congratulations, that's awesome. Thanks. So, uh, Kurt, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what compelled you to pursue a career in conservation. Um, okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm originally from New Jersey. I grew up, uh, so I spent two thirds of my life in uh, a suburb of Philadelphia and, um, a job in conservation really just wasn't something on my radar. You know, I, I went to, to college, thought I was going to become a doctor like my father. And, um, you know, m- meanwhile, I really, I enjoyed fishing. I, I really loved the ocean. I, I appreciated uh, wildlife and uh, diversity of species and, and kind of spending time out in nature. But I never really put two and two together that I could kind of do that as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my I had some, some kind of pivotal moments during my junior and senior year of, of my undergraduate degree. Uh, I took herpetology, um, which, which is a very hands-on class. Uh, for those who don't know, it's the study of uh, amphibians and reptiles. And my teacher was a, a herpetologist by trade. He had done all sorts of cool research on um, on tree frogs in Costa Rica. He loved to tell us about his research. And for class, we were outside at night uh, catching salamanders and <laughs> learning about uh, salamander reproductive strategies. And I thought, man, this is this is cool. Yeah, you know, these are cool. And then you know, starting to learn about a lot of the. Um, challenges that amphibians are facing with a, a different, you know, some pretty major declines across the globe in amphibian populations. I thought, you know, there really uh, is a need for people to to learn about, um, you know, in this case, salamanders and frogs in order to help uh, protect them. And so I kind of tied that together and said, hey, I really enjoy fishing and, and fisheries, and it's uh, important to me to, you know, try and preserve the things that I care about. So I pretty much had a eureka, you know, it wasn't a, a quick eureka moment, but it was a gradual um, kind of just realization that I could do this. Yeah. And 
you know, thinking about being a, a doctor and, and it was just getting me to kind of think about what we do in our profession. Um, a lot of what we do is we're kind of the doctors for the environment, so to speak, or like a fish doctor. We're taking the pulse of the environment. And in your case, it's, you know, working with a, with a fish species and trying to figure out what it's health is and i think of that as uh, very uh, parallel with what medical yeah, doctors are doing i agree i think to, you know to to conserve and heal the body you need to have a really good understanding of how the body works um how to identify problems what the major problems are and yeah i agree it's a very similar thing you know we're conserving either populations or, or species and uh, the fundamental knowledge it to make good decisions is um, what do these species need? What does this population require? And what are the threats to it? Yeah. So kind of along those same lines, um, who, what, or maybe even both was instrumental in getting you interested in conservation? Uh, well, for me, it was more about places than it was about any um, – particular uh person i guess um so the first thing that comes to mind is uh in the summer every year when i was growing up we'd go out to long island uh, long island new york the very far tip way past new, <laughs> new york city yeah because everybody thinks you know yeah, past coney new island new york city we were way out at the um towards the the very north fork so near orient point mm-hmm. um and I just have the best memories of of um, going fishing, just spending time on the beach. Uh, we had a little dragnet or a beach seine, mm-hmm. and as kids, we'd just scoop up stuff, and we caught the coolest stuff. We caught blowfish, all sorts of little crabs and snapping shrimp. And, man, I just I loved uh, just seeing what you could pull out of the ocean. Yeah. Um, and then the second pl- – so that place kind of connected me to the ocean – the second thing or place is just my house growing up. We moved into a house when I was in fourth grade, and we had a bass pond in the backyard. And, man, I just started fishing like crazy, you know. Loved catching bass, and I started to go find every single bass pond in town. I'd go fish those. Uh, and then when I got my driver's license in high school, I was I was a fishing maniac. You know, I, I started fishing at the New Jersey Shore, got really into striped bass fishing, just still like one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. And so I just, I developed a deep love for, for fishing and, and, um, through that a respect for, uh, fish populations. And, you know, like I said, I, I developed that long before I, I decided I wanted to pursue a career in conservation. So, um, you know, we always hear about how difficult it is to get in this profession and, and, um, and so I kind of want to think about the the difficulties maybe that you face, some of the hurdles that maybe you faced and, and how you got over those to get where you're at today, um, whether it's before you got into to college or some of the hurdles you faced since you, you've been in college in, in terms of getting your master's degree and, and now your Ph.D. Yeah, so I guess continuing – Maybe on from that kind of eureka moment, you know, I'm a junior, senior in, in college, and now I realize, oh, I don't have to be a doctor. I can 
to go, you know, uh, study conservation or be a, a fisheries scientist or a herpetologist. So I kind of shifted gears there, and I, like a lot of people do, I think, I started working out uh, doing a lot of technician jobs. So I worked um, in Wyoming as a fisheries technician. I worked in Alaska as a fish tech. And those were just awesome experiences for me, but I quickly realized that I would I wanted uh, a job where I could use my brain a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in fisheries science, you, you pretty much need a master's degree now to get a full-time job where you're not just, you know, out there collecting data and handing it off to a biologist. Um, so the first kind of hurdle was, was realizing, man, I need to go back to grad school. And, um, you know, I was really intimidated by... Uh, by standardized tests. I was like, oh man, I got through college. Now I need to take the GREs. And, you know, I've never been great at, at math. And, you know, what's harder than math is trying to do math while someone's timing you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, that was a big hurdle. Um, so I just took off three months. I had, you know, I said, I'm taking three months. I'm just going to study for the GREs. And I still, you know, barely got good enough grades to uh, get me into grad school. But um, I made some connections, you know, just because when I was up in Alaska, I started introducing myself to professors. And I got to think that it's just because I put myself out there and introduced myself to a lot of people that um, that when I that that's why I got uh, a graduate position. Um, so that was the first hurdles getting into grad school. Mm-hmm. And so you said that that was one hurdle. Did you have another hurdle that you kind of had to get over? Yeah, the second one kind of was a kind of a personal hurdle that I sort of dealt with towards the end of my master's degree. I was doing I was doing well, um, but I kind of had to decide towards the end if I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to just get a job. And I shouldn't say just get a job. If I wanted to. Um, kind of leave my education at that, uh, get a, a job as a fisheries manager, or if I wanted to continue on in, uh, as a, a research scientist or an, or even a, an academic. Um, so the hurdle was kind of making that decision and, and convincing myself that uh, I had what it takes to kind of take it that, to that next level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I thought long and hard about that. I recognize how competitive uh, and challenging it can be to get a, a position in academia. Um, so I, I kind of had a realistic perspective on, you know, do I want to go down this road? And I think when I when I started publishing papers and journals, that uh, for me was a, a really important point in my life because I I recognized that, hey, I, I can do this. You know, this is hard, um, but but I can produce good science. I can publish it and... Um, that gave me a lot of self-confidence when those first papers came out. And, um, I think if I hadn't had that success, I probably wouldn't have pursued a PhD. Uh, so of course there's still lots of hurdles to to jump over (laughs) kind of in that career path, but, um, I guess I'll jump over them when I get to them. And I think kind of going back to what you said earlier about just collecting data, you know, I think the really neat thing, especially when you publish your first few papers, is, you know, you worked on implementing the, the research, 
you collected the data and then you saw it all the way to the end product, which is, you know, publishing it and getting it in a peer reviewed journal and out for other people to, uh, to read and evaluate and, and use for, um, conservation. So I think when you see that and, and how important it is to get to that point, I think that really sparks you to go, wow, I, I want to do that again. You know, that's really neat. It's a completed product. Yeah, and may, maybe just the stars aligned for me, but um, my master's work too was we found out some things that uh, were really, really important for managers. Um, so I worked in the Arctic where there's expanding uh, petroleum development in the National Petroleum Reserve. And we found out some things about fish movement and habitat use that um, are currently still are, are influencing decisions that are being made uh, when it comes to uh, where to build bridges over certain water bodies, where to build culverts, uh, where to uh, extract water from uh, for ice road construction. So it's, it's really, it's, it's fulfilling to see that the some some work that I did is being you know it's important and being used. Yeah, and I think you know that's one of the other things I think graduate students it, it takes them a while to to come to realize that the work they do has huge implications. You know the 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 research funding you got that for a reason because it's an important problem and. Um, a lot of the graduate students are working on projects that have huge uh, implications in terms of management. Um, and, you know, for, you know, in Alaska, probably a lot of it's related to oil and gas development. We think about, um, um, you know, some of the work that's going on in Yellowstone Park in terms of uh, suppression of lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. That's a multi-million dollar project. And there's graduate students that are informing how that project moves forward. And so that's probably a good segue into um, your research. And so um, I know you're working in Yellowstone uh, National Park and, and you're working on Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Could you tell us a little bit more about kind of what you're doing and what, what kind of the goals and objectives are and maybe a little bit about um, it's probably premature because you don't have uh, all the data analyzed, but kind of what you what what the project is is or, or the main reason for doing this project in the park yeah so i'm studying um i guess in a general sense conservation and management of yellowstone cutthroat trout in a particular watershed the lamar river uh, watershed in northern uh, yellowstone national park and this is a, a real stronghold for this subspecies of cutthroat trout um this, the Yellowstone cutthroat trout is declining throughout their native range. Uh, only about uh, 30% of the historical distribution of Yellowstone cutthroat trout are now uh, present in, a, in an unhybridized form. Um, and so what we're doing in this watershed is trying to understand um, the threats, uh, where, and w where and when those threats are presenting themselves um, and what sort of management actions we can take to, to help uh, uh, mitigate the risks, I guess. So the, the threat in this case um, is, is uh, expanding populations of non-native rainbow trout. So the only native 
cutthroat tra trout in this watershed is the Yellowstone cutthroat trout. Um, they've been there by themselves for the last <laughs> 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. um, but it, once humans started figuring out how to raise trout in captivity, uh, we were a little gung-ho and started um, dumping non-native trout kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, so rainbow trout have been in this watershed since uh, the late 1800s, uh, but only recently are they starting to really expand. So their populations are expanding. They're being found further and further upstream in the drainage. What? Why is it taking so long? To expand um that's a that's one of the questions we're trying to figure out um so an interesting thing about this um conservation uh situation is that rainbow trout are are pretty closely related to yellowstone cutthroat trout and uh, they can hybridize to produce fertile offspring so not only are they competing directly with yellowstone cutthroat trout but uh, they're hybridizing with them, producing fertile offspring. And so, in a way, uh, non-native genes are spreading throughout this watershed. Um, and, and it's interesting that that's just now starting to become, uh, uh, it's spreading. So picture just being still, and then suddenly these genes start spreading upstream. Mm -hmm. um, Part of it is linked to, or believed to be linked to, changing patterns of hydrology. Um, over the last 30, 40 years, patterns of snowmelt runoff are getting much earlier. So the peak spring flow is getting a lot earlier, and in some cases, less severe. Um, and that is believed to be a, a beneficial um, environmental condition for rainbow trout. Hmm. allowing them to have higher reproductive success. Um, so it's pretty interesting that rainbow trout evolved in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so they evolved reproductive timing to match conditions in the Pacific Northwest. When you drop them in Yellowstone, they still behave in that way that they've evolved. They still spawn uh, April and May, even though the Yellowstone cutthroat trout generally spawn um as late as June and July. So for a long time, kind of that mismatch between the best spawning strategy and, and in their, in their non native environment, I think has, has kept their population numbers um, from expanding. Um, so maybe that's getting a little too far into the weeds, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, problem. So, thinking about your research and kind of the end product, if you could kind of put a crystal ball out there, what is the best thing you could discover? The best thing yeah. I could discover? Yeah. Um, well, I consider there's two kind of main parts of my research. One is, and the first and foremost is, what can we do specifically in Lamar watershed? Where can we go? Where should we target fish? Um, just what are the right management actions that we could take so that's priority number one um, and we're we're succeeding at that we're identifying new sources of rainbow trout populations that no one knew about um, so that's we've been pretty effective in in learning things that are going to be useful for for conservation uh, i 
I really am also interested in kind of the on a more theoretical level how uh, how combining two species that evolved in different places that have different behavior how what happens when you have uh, this intermediate intermediate kind of genetic composition how do they behave and what are the what are the impacts on on fitness and spawning timing mm-hmm. so i'm for me it'd be i'm interested in kind of answering some of those deeper questions in ecology about just kind of the the effects of genetics on behavior the interaction between um genetics in the environment to produce different phenotypes so you know maybe some big discovery that you know <laughs> is uh applicable to not just you know cutthroat trout but you know something that we can learn more about kind of how hybridization influences um just basic ecology of of uh, of individuals and how that might affect ecosystems yeah. So, you know, it's good science paper. Yeah, there you go. Science, nature. <clears throat> Got a couple um, ideas. So uh, I want to thank you for um, doing the podcast today and um, being the guinea pig in episode one. I know you received your master's degree from the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Yep. And um, Alaska has this such a romantic appeal, right? And. <clears throat> And especially for people in the conservation field, everybody wants to go to Alaska. And now, I mean, almost every channel on TV has like something Alaska frontier, you know, some people that are out in the back country doing something out there. Yeah, we, and, li- we lived in Alaska, didn't have a TV. <laughs> we came home for Thanksgiving and everyone knew more about Alaska than we did. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> So thinking about Alaska and how wild and remote and cool it is, do you have any like memorable experiences from being in Alaska that you might want to share before we, we call it quits? Yeah, I had some, uh, I did. It's, it's an interesting contrast. When I did my master's, I was in the most remote place you can think of on the Arctic coastal plain. Uh, they dropped me off in a helicopter and picked me up two months later. I went for a month without seeing another human except for Nate, my, my field technician. Yeah. And I went, and, and that's why most people get in this profession, right? Is they don't want to deal with humans; they'd rather deal with animals. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah we have to talk on podcasts <laughs> and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but one day I was out there. Oh, and I was contrasting that with now working in Yellowstone, mm-hmm. which is a, a very um, there's a lot of people there. Yeah. Yep. You know, there's always someone looking at me, yep. Yep. which is cool. And yep. I get to interact with the public a lot, explain what we're doing. Yep. Um, but I was out there one day um, doing a survey of a, a, a stream I was working on, and I saw muskox. I'd never I'd seen pictures of them, and I knew they were kind of in the area. And there he was, just a big muskox <laughs> <laughs> eating a bunch of willows. And uh, I didn't have a camera or anything, so just kind of sat there with him for a while, watched him got about as close as I could until he started digging his horns in the ground, which I, which I took as a sign of that's close yeah, enough. Close enough. Yeah. Um, but that was cool. I saw a lot of pretty wild things out there. That's cool. Is a musk ox about the same size as a bison? Yeah, I think yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. I'd love to see a musk ox. So again, thanks a bunch, Kurt, for being our first guest on today's Voices of uh, Conservation Science. And we we wish you the best of luck in your PhD. 
And uh, for the next episode, uh, we're going to be learning about uh, science that goes into uh, conserving bats in Montana. So thanks for listening, and please share this podcast and tell your friends about today's Voices of Conservation.